Father, just thank you for our time and just looking over the past few weeks, being thankful to have the privilege to just look and study and ask questions of what you have left for us in your word. Now just help us to be diligent and faithful stewards of it as we desire to not only learn, but pass on what we have learned to others who in turn will faithfully continue to pass on these truths. So we just ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, really quick, the beginning, because I don't think we'll, we might go the whole time because I say that and then we will go the whole time, probably. Uh, any questions up to this point before we jump into implication, application? Is anyone wondering why I say implication? Why don't I just say application? Or do you view them as synonyms? I don't have an issue with application, but I do think it can be uh, a little detached from the text, which we're going to talk about. So I kind of like implication because um, application can get a little bit, which it is intended to move us towards in a sense, and I have big quotes before someone puts this on YouTube. Um, We're moving from this aspect of what does the text say to what does the text mean, And you could say, to what the text means to me, in the most appropriate right way. Um, But there obviously is danger, and I would argue, and I would say, this is by far where the most mistakes happen, but you can't fix this mistake in this step, which is why we've spent 80% of our time in observation, because if you made a mistake here, it's go back to step one. Okay, let me, what does it say? And I'm, if you miss what it says, you're going to miss what it means. And if you miss what it means, you're going to miss it on the implication application side. Um, so the answers pretty much always go back to step one and step two <coughs> as we work through this, um, just because of that reality that too many people jump to the step really fast because it's, it's a little bit of the way I think we're trained to read in general maybe with school, but also specifically in the church with devotional reading where we're just reading, um, what do I get out of this? I got a word, I got a thing, I, got a, um, I thought about this situation in my life based on this text and there may or may not be any direct correlation from that text and what it means to how you applied it to your life. Um, and I'm not saying there, there's no way in which um, this is a whole other category of the spirit and illumination, um, but in which I understand, like, as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, there are going to be things coming to your mind that are your concerns that get brought to a text, and even a text that may on surface have nothing in its meaning directly correlated to a situation in your life. It can still bring encouragement and some other things, but I think this is where it becomes very important to make a distinction and application there and to understand I got encouragement from this but I also understand that's because the Spirit brought this to mind, this to mind, and this to mind, um, and not always draw it tight to a specific text in those situations. So we'll start looking at uh, questions real quick. Anybody else questions? Okay. So everything goes back to this fundamental conviction of there is a meaning in the text. There's one. And if you say it means something, and I say it means something else, one of us is wrong. Why? Because there was a particular author that the Spirit inspired to write to a particular audience for a reason with a specific purpose. And I would extend this a little bit, that understanding the application implication must flow from authorial intent, and that the meaning of that text in the first century is, or whatever century we're looking at, is still the meaning today. It also is really important to remember that God inspired these letters, which we have an individualistic culture, and we're taught to read individualistically. And so it's, got a, it's a good reminder to say and understand these letters are to churches. These letters, now you have like an outlier, maybe like a Philemon, where it's written to an individual, but even that, is a letter that is passed down through the church because of its impact on uh, the whole church. 
And so God inspired it not just for the individual, but also he obviously mainly inspired it for the church. That becomes really important in the application side and understanding why it's so important on the implication side. Because we're, we get in trouble when we quickly run to the individual side because you're, you're already running from probably the intended authorial intent right away, which, again, we got to get there. Think about how does this impact believers before you kind of maybe even look specifically to what, what are you taking away from it. I would not, and I would encourage you not to say, thus says the Lord, unless it is, unless you're confident this is what the Lord says. So they're very much, and very often in preaching, I'm going to preach a text, and I'm going to work on application, um, and I'm going to do so in a way where if it is a looser connection, which we're going to work through that a little bit this morning, I'm going to say it with probably a little less authority. Now, there might be that truth expounded very authoritatively, very clear elsewhere in Scripture. And in those cases, it's not like you can't preach and be very authoritative and, um, on those things. But there might be an implication for your life that you see, and this is kind of what happens in implication is, where you see this is an implication that's going to affect the decision I'm making in my family, and you want to be a little careful to go, that's what I'm convicted to do, but is this text saying everyone has to do it this way? And just be careful with doing that. Uh, One of my favorite quotes, a very random quote, from Fellowship of the Ring, if you've ever read the books, from early on in the first book, um, where Frodo's very frustrated because the elves won't give him answers. Frodo and Sam meet the elves in the Shire before they're leaving. And he's really frustrated because the elves never give a straight answer. They're always, you know, almost asking a question back. And the elves respond that elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. So it's one of my favorite quotes on, as you're studying the word and as you're giving advice and you're giving counsel, Um, it's a very dangerous gift you're giving somebody because I've seen it over and over again that when I, depending on kind of what your relationship is with the individual, I tend to most of the time have a position, at least from a spiritual perspective, of authority. So it's always scary when someone does what I tell them to do. So I'll admit, people have asked me, you know, before what they should do with their career or something, and I'm just kind of like, well, I don't know, if I was you, I'd do X. And then they quit their job and try to start a business. And I'm going, I don't know. I'm, I kind of regret giving that, you know, because you're not me. So giving guarded advice when you don't know for sure is important. And that's, I think, particularly applied to the scriptures. And the wisest people get how dangerous advices are, even if you're a fictional elf. So. When I'm talking about implication, so moving from the what is the text saying, what does it mean, to what's the implication for today. Uh, this is where most mistakes are made. I'm looking for the closest implication of the meaning of the text first, then moving out and understanding the limits. So some people have used the kind of illustration or the picture of a ladder, and you're going up the rungs, and you're getting further away from the text, and there's going to be some texts that are directly applicable um, there's a direct implication. There's going to be some text where there is kind of a loose or slight implication. And there's going to be times where there is no direct correlation, but we can still draw some implication for our, our lives, probably from a principle that the text is laying out. In other words, it'd be there's no one-to-one scenario between this event in the church or that cultural issue and today, but we can still learn from it even if we don't have the same issues. I don't think I have any examples of uh, offering food to idols, but that would be a really good example of that, where there's, we don't offer food to idols today in our culture. Um, so you might be able to draw for that implication, though, if you went to 1 Corinthians 9 and you started to deal with, well, what do you deal with the weaker and the stronger brother and somebody who his conscience is convicted by that? Well, now we can take this to conscience issues, and we can ask, what are the conscience issues today that if I might be like, I'm absolutely free in Christ to do this, but it might cause a brother to sin. Do I do it or not do it? And Paul says, don't do it. Um, Say, so, yeah, I have the right to do that. Idols aren't real. There's nothing special about food offered to them. But for the sake of unity and the brothers, um, you know, go ahead and refrain. So 
that would be an example of, of that. I'll use that just because I, I got another one in here. My favorite definition of expository preaching, I think, communicates this well, which is to say that if it's, I think, true and genuine expository preaching, um, I don't care if you preach one word from one verse, although there's always dangers in preaching little context, um, or if you're preaching a whole chapter, the whole point is that the message that's being prepared, that's being taught, the message of the sermon is the meaning um, of the text. Apparently, I made these way too early this morning, or whenever I did it the other, I guess, a few days ago, because I have multiple typos. So. The message of the sermon is meaning of the text. Let's go ahead and put a the. But as you evaluate, uh, what'd you say? I didn't even see it. That's okay. That, that is, isn't our brain wonderful? It just supplied. Yeah. Someone, I don't know who was talking. We were talking about Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's with somebody. And it is one of those crazy things in Hebrew. Um, there were no vowel pointings. There's no vowels in Hebrew. But obviously, you need to use vowels to like pronounce words. But it's all context. They just knew what those consonants together sounded like. So I say Yahweh, but there is technically no way to know for sure if those are the vowels that Yehwah, Yah, you're just left with. It's some vowels and those consonants of that. So, But at some point, people knew it really well. And then, historically speaking, in Judaism, they stopped pronouncing it because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And so people stopped pronouncing it. They took out the vowel. Like, they never had, didn't have vowels. And so eventually people didn't know what it was actually. They just When they see it, they just say you know, a different, different word. So. so this is helpful, though. If you guys are examining, um, is a preacher, whether myself or others, or um, what you're communicating, I just think this is helpful. If you're trying to create a message or you're communicating truth, that's where it starts, that it's coming from the meaning of the text. I don't think you have to show all your work. I don't think you got to go in. Um, we have to make every observation Josh made this week or that I read, for example. Um, you guys don't need to go read stuff on 666. We're actually, I bet if you time me today, we will spend about 90 seconds to 120 seconds talking about what does 666 mean. So, because that's about how much the text, like, we don't have much information on what it means. But if you get into numerologists and names and how letters equal names, it gets pretty weird out there. Um, what'd you say? The what'd you say? Yeah. <laughs> so that'd be a good example of, we don't have to show all, I don't think, observation work, but you do have to say what this means and kind of show to some degree of like, this is how we're interpreting this passage. For someone to go, okay, I see how you got there, and this isn't just what you're saying, but this is what the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to his church for all, all time. Or he would have done something different, which makes every bit of Scripture important because all of it is God's word to his people. All right, so you can turn there if you want. Just a couple examples, uh, short examples. We have one longer example. We'll kind of see where that takes us. All right, so if you're moving up this ladder, so imagine a ladder and you're, on the, you're sitting there at the meeting of the text and you're like, oh, I'm ready to go apply the text. I've done my work. I've done the hard work of observation and I'm ready to climb up. The, the first thing you're looking for, the first rung you're grabbing is this idea of direct implication or direct correlated, um, directly correlated to the, the actual text. Um, if we're looking at context, like, there's some helpful things here, and this is why it's always a little bit dangerous, and um, I don't want to spend too much time here, but we did do a little bit of Colossians. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the, the language of Colossians later with spiritual maturity, but this is in a whole context, obviously, of a book that's talking about spiritual maturity, particularly then you're going to say, okay, this is spiritual maturity in the house, and so it gives household or house code language of the first century, so... He's not assuming, like, there's, there's no assumption that, oh, the way a typical Greco-Roman person would operate in a household, he's going, you need more instruction because this is how a Christian operates. There's some things that are the same, and there's some things that are different. There are husbands, there are wives. That's the same. But 
Um, some things are going to be different in the way you do it, and some things are going to be similar. Um, and so in this case, you have a direct correlation because we have wives in the first century, and we have wives today. We have husbands in the first century. We have husbands today. So we can look specifically then and go be subject to your husbands as is fitting into the Lord. And, of course, you can talk then about those implications. What does that look like in a culture that's a little, um, obviously, as a general culture, we're not in the same patriarchal model of the first century. So there's a little work there to do. But you can directly go, there's wives that this directly applies to. And then you start working on back to the meaning side of what does that submission look like today. Same thing with husbands. Love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. But it's a very direct, very simple um, application for us today. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them, which I always find interesting. Um, just even the way a lot of times when you see the household code, especially in First Peter, there's just certain assumptions made. And I think the guys usually the ones that by nature are going to be challenged by being embittered or in um, when it talks about treating her as a weaker vessel, which I think is just treating her like a woman, um, and live with her in an understanding way. The kind of assumption there is that most men are going to struggle being understanding and struggle with this, and so he corrects them. And the wives don't usually have the issues, at least. So their issues are different, particularly if you're married to an unbeliever, which is what he addresses in First Peter 3. So that's just direct correlation. There are wives, there are husbands today. Slight correlation. So moving up to, let's just call it the second rung of the ladder. You have something where there is some similarity today, but it's not one-to-one. So it's one-to-one husbands and wives from the first century to today. Here you have a slight correlation from the first century to today because you have here in Colossians 3 that he's addressing in the same household code where we saw so just the next section, we saw husbands, <coughs> husbands wives, um, children. Here we see slaves and masters. And so he says, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, and knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So it's a really good example of a slight correlation because we do not have, at least in America, slaves and masters, but... We do have something similar, especially if you look at slavery in the first century, which is different than American slavery, which is it was an economic system fundamentally uh, where people willingly put themselves into slavery as employment. And so then you start working down and go, okay, so it's not directed that I'm not talking to any masters today, I'm not talking to any slaves in America today, but there is some correlation to employee and employer. And so we can make these implications from the text for an employee, verse 22, listen, if you're an employee and all the things you do as that function, like they employ you, they, they bought your time, as it were, right? So we don't think of it that way, but they paid you X dollars or promised to pay you X dollars. They bought your time. And when you're working for them in all things, do what they say. Um, not with simply eye service, which is very interesting language, this whole idea of you're doing it just for show or just outwardly and in your heart are bitter, angry, frustrated, but you're to do it um, with the right motivation and heart, with the integrity, fearing the Lord. And there would be a really easy implication for an employee today that's really struggling with, hey, how do I, you know, respect my boss? Well, here's a, you don't really have a choice. You might be able to get a new job, but we don't have the option of disrespecting those who employ us, um, which will be interesting in our culture, right? Because we're, we're going to move and move uh, into a direction where it's going to be difficult. You could even say Revelation 13 difficult, where, you know, how easy is it going to be to buy and sell or those kinds of things. Keep a job if they ask you, because this doesn't mean, this would be packed to the bit on correlation, it doesn't mean you should sin. Say, well, should we obey him in everything? Well, not if it comes to a decision between obeying God or pleasing men, obey God. And then that second aspect in 4.1 with the masters. So if you're the boss, if you own the business, show to your employees what is right and fair. Don't mistreat them because in that culture, it would have been fine. They work for you. In that case, 
they're slaves to you. Um, but don't mistreat them because of that fact, because know that you have a, a master in heaven as well. So slight correlation. So you got direct cor- correlation, slight correlation, and then let's just call it the third rung of the ladder as you're climbing up. You're going to have situations you're going to run into in Scripture with a distant correlation. A distant correlation. So up the third rung where First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. Now let's assume for the moment he's talking about the gathering of the church um, in this pastoral epistle, and he's talking about going to church. You should wear proper clothing, modesty and self-restraint, which is described very specifically, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly clothing. I'm looking. Where's it? Okay. There's my gold. Thank you. Everyone's like, I'm not even wearing this. So the question would become here, okay, um, if we looked at this and we've done all of our work of observation and we've done our work of interpretation, we have to come here and go, okay, what's the implication? Is it a very direct implication? Which is, ladies, when you go to church, proper clothing equals, modest clothing equals, self-restraint equals, no braided hair, no gold, no pearls, no costly clothing, which, of course, it's a little bit of a relative term on what costly is, one to another. Um, is that a direct correlation? Is it kind of slight? Or in this case, I think it's probably best to think of this as a, as a distant correlation up that third rung where you might intuitively even go, well, that's crazy talk. Well, I think this is where you study the word and go, if that's what it means, take the braid out because we're, we're humbly submitting to the word, but at the same time going like, okay, what about this? Is he talking about what's the, and that's where you back into uh, the principal side of, he's talking about what proper clothing is, which basically clothing that is modesty and shows self-restraint. And in that culture, braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly clothing would be things that would be associated with um, being improper, someone trying to put the light on them, um, to walk down and show off how wealthy they are or other things. And so principally speaking, then, it's not that you can't have braided hair. In fact, you could have braided hair, uh, pearls, and costly clothing. Or I should say it the other way. You could have unbraided hair, no jewelry, cheap clothes, and you could be immodest, right? You'd violate this even though you technically went and said, well, I thought I applied it to my life very specifically. I didn't braid my hair. I didn't wear this stuff. But you could still be immodest. You could still show lack of restraint and violate verse 10, which is his point, which is this is what you should be known by. You're not coming to church to be noticed by everyone, um, but you're coming to church so that people see that uh, your good works and your godliness. So... I'd share more stories with that, but I think I'll get in trouble. <laughs> so, I feel like, I feel like oh, my, my wife has such a great story of college, you know, where she was very much like had that moment of like, oh, like I can turn heads, you know, and like never realizing it. And I always think it's a funny thing where it's like, that's this idea. So like I said, I'll get in trouble if I say too much, but it's, it's, uh, it's just an interesting thing where you go, oh yeah, you can get in trouble here. And it's very important that you properly apply it because you're going to have issues in the church if everyone is looking at the external and not coming to church going, hey, this is where we worship the Lord. Um, and so we would say, I'm trying to think of the best illustration, but if you got invited to the gala in Hollywood, you probably would dress differently than church. And it's not a great example probably because it's probably inappropriate either way, but you know what I mean. There's, there's, there's ways to be appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. I do have one of my titles. There it is. Um, so the no correlation. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We don't have sacrificial, a sacrificial system going on, either within the church or within the secular world, and we don't have idols. But yet you could look and like take an implication from this. So, even though there's no correlation to today, not even slightly, 
They just don't exist today. How do you go about <clears throat> looking at implication? Thoughts? Right, which we, like I said, this is always dangerous with one verse because you'd have to go. There's more going on in First Corinthians. But. Right. And that's a little bit close to where you could get a little bit principle, I think, that the side of we do still worship things. Um, the whole context of unity is going to play into this pretty much too. The way, what, what way does knowledge puff up? Well, it's causing disunity in the body because they're fighting over this issue. And he's going, 1 Corinthians 13 style, like, you're, you're, you're a clanging symbol. But. All right, questions on that before we go to a long example? Any of it? Flight? Anyone can think of other difficult ones? All right, we're going to look at stories more the next couple weeks, so we'll save some of that. But stories are another one that you get in a lot of trouble, I feel like, pretty fast, um, particularly in parables and things where, in fact, it was Chris Snyder who sent me a sermon, I don't know how many years ago, I was mowing when I listened to it, um, on the parables. And it was describing what the, <laughs> what the different soils were, and I was like, it was different phases of the Christian life, and I was like, Man, if he just would have kept reading, like, just a few more verses, like, Jesus actually tells you what the soils are, what the seed is. But, so, that's back to reading everything. It becomes important. All right, 1 Corinthians 11. All right, we're going to look at verse 2, and we're going to look at head coverings, and we're going to have this discussion, because I think this is a helpful discussion because it brings up some of the most important issues with um, is it cultural or is it not cultural? So, And there are churches um, that believe in that you should wear, you should cover your head, ladies, when you pray. Um, it doesn't come up a lot on a Sunday morning, for example, but they're trying to be faithful to this text because it's, it's a harder text, mostly because we don't know all of the situations going on. A little bit of background of that kind of first century feminist movement um, with the shaved heads, particularly you could call it a transgender movement, which we're familiar with, um, does play a bit into this with covered and uncovered. And that is kind of important to understand what's going on. Well, let's just, I'll read these uh, just two through 16 and we'll kind of walk through some of this because asking those questions of, is this direct correlation? Of course, you still have to interpret what is covering. Is it their hair? Is it something external? Um, so you still got to do a lot of interpreting along the way. If you're going to take direct implication, is this slight implication? Is it distant? Is it no correlation today? And you could extend this to the same kind of issue. A lot of <coughs> the egalitarian arguments for... Um, women pastors and things are going to come out of a cultural argument that that was just for that day. And um, so, all right, uh, verse two says, now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So again, it's important to go contextually. What does that mean? You've got to go to a little digging commentary-wise. Uh, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For if indeed man has not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
It's interesting. Because of the angels. That's his argument. Never, uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is a man independent of a woman. For as a woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. All right. We've been in 1 Corinthians a couple different times. Um, does anyone remember kind of what we, at least I argued for, as a central theme? Letter of correction, and I think particularly um, on what is he's going to hit over and over again, which we looked in chapter one or two. I think it's more of an explicit theme of him discussing unity. Um, that's a little simplistic, but it works really well to say. And I think sometimes it helps recognizing it can be a little, to use a big word, like reductionistic. Um, it's a little simplistic to say just unity, but at the same time, you can take everything in the book of Corinthians and go, oh, he's addressing whether it's sexual morality, whether it is church discipline, whether uh, it's believers suing, like taking lawsuits against one another, or as you kind of get and you kind of just look in context, okay, go back to chapter 10, where he's giving very much instruction over all of this, which he actually really hits pretty hard on don't be like Israel. It's kind of chapter 10 in, in summary. Um, but we're talking about conscience issues. Give no offense, verse 32 of chapter 10, either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also, I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So if you're looking at the book at a whole and you're breaking it apart, you, what you see is you start to see, okay, there feels like a bit of a shift in 11. So when we talked about breaking a book into paragraphs, you know, breaking it down. There is a shift here where he starts addressing very specific issues that seem to be what I would call Sunday morning issues. And so later today, um, not 100%, but I'll probably go to 1 Corinthians 11 for communion. You have a few different choices, but I'll probably go to 1 Corinthians 11. And so the same passage I just read is probably the most common passage where people go to the Lord's table and quote um, in 17 and on. It's kind of interesting, right? It's one of those things like as a kid you're going, wait, what's, what happens just before this? I never knew that. Um, but it, he's dealing with an issue in the church, which seems Sunday morning something's happening with women and men and head coverings. Also something's happening that's very negative in this case with the Lord's Supper that's causing a lot of disunities. They're getting drunk and people are being judged. And then another one that's happening Sunday mornings is people and Particularly, the revelatory gifts are way out of hand, and people are pursuing and getting crazy, and there's seemingly even a false gift, um, depending on how you take tongue, singular versus tongues, plural, kind of in 12, 13, and 14. He's going to push and pull all these things together to say, hey, every answer is going to be get it together. Um, in this case, I permit this, I don't permit this. So he does give a command um, in the sense that um, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. So 16... The question of, is this something that was for the first Corinthians church? Is this something that's for all churches in the first century? Or is this an issue that you can say is correlated <coughs> today for all time, all churches, all cultures? And then you have to answer in what way? So, all right, answer first question. Is this for just the First Corinthians church? Well, at least it's for them, right, I guess. I mean, the question is, is it for more? Well, it's in the Bible. And there's at least four letters that are referred to in First Corinthians is Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is Fourth Corinthians. Um, so why don't we have the other two letters? This is back to the nature of God's word because the church at a whole didn't need those two letters. But they needed this letter. You and I need this letter. We need this message on 
unity. And we need the message on unity, particularly not only just towards, say, it might be a little easier to talk about with spiritual gifts or the Lord's Supper. We also need it for head coverings. But what is the main subject of head coverings? The way, and this is totally cheating of me because we're not going to walk through the whole text. The way I understand this is looking at it more from the per- per- perspective of what he's clearly after here, particularly you're, you're kind of tipped off to it in verse 10 because you're verses 2 through 9 a little bit lost. We know it's men and women, men, women, men, women, men, women, something about an action that's shameful, so something that is disgraceful. And it's something that is visible, so much so that in verse 10, therefore a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Which honestly is probably the most difficult verse in here because the question then becomes, if you need a symbol, maybe it's not here today. Maybe we need another symbol. What would that symbol be? And that kind of takes you down that rabbit hole. Um, but clearly it's a confusion that he's saying is even confusing the angels. So I would take this as, as a whole discussing this issue of men's and women's roles. It's no surprise to us. They're very confused in the First Corinthian church. There's a full-fledged like feminist movement, uh, transgender movement going on in the first century. And people are getting saved. People are coming into the church and they're going, well, is this okay or is this not okay? And Paul is rooting this, which I think is one of the reasons you take this as a principle for all times and all places, in creation. As he continues in 11, by rooting the argument he's having, he's saying this isn't just for you, this isn't just for the first century, but there is something that you can transcend a principle that the woman's not independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. He goes back to the creation story of verse 12 and saying this is the way God made you. This is who you are. You're distinctive. And it should be visibly seen that you shouldn't walk in Sunday morning and be confused. Is that a man or is that a woman? And we all know, even today, culturally, I think, I'm going to be the only one dressed somewhat like in a suit today. And I know there's like business suits for women and stuff. But even then, you could recognize a woman and go, that's a woman, that's a man. That's the issue going on here is the recognition of that's a woman that's a man. So much so that the angels, I guess, even cause confusion. Therefore, he asks them the question, verse 13, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that? If a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. Which I think he's going back into the created order and saying, men are men, women are women. There's no place for the church to have any confusion on that issue. And in this culture, that means women don't look like men and that culture or that kind of feminist movement. So that would be... It's a cultural issue that he's applying, I think, a biblical principle to. And so we would take that... Right. I would probably say this is in that slight correlation where I think there is an application for the church today on the way we dress matters. Because you might be tempted to go, well, it doesn't matter how we dress. We're all free in Christ, which probably is what was being said there. And Paul's actually going, whoa, 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 whoa. We got off the rails here. Well, because there's just a big Right. If you can maybe talk, could you talk to them? Or is that more offline? No, no, I mean, that's fine. Um, yeah, so same issue. Um, is Paul rooting that issue, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 Corinthians, he talks about it as well. Um, I think the context here, which we've already stated, is the church is Sunday morning issues. So when he talks about it in 1 Corinthians, like, do not permit a woman to speak, um, I think there's a context to that. So I don't think anyone, and there's no church really arguing that um, ladies can't speak today. Like, you can't say hi, you can't say good morning, no speaking. But that's what it says. I do not put a woman to speak. But this is Bible study. What's the context? Um, In what way speak? And it seems to be tied to authoritative speaking, which we would tie to preaching. 
Uh, and then the same thing goes then in First Timothy 2 is there's a tie to authority, which is particularly in that case the authority of the elders, and I think the authority that's given to um, feed, protect, defend doctrine within the church. And that he's saying that's distinctly given, that, that, that's, that's a masculine role, um, which shouldn't surprise anybody that believes in a created order because men and women are different. Right, and then he goes right into elder qualifications. Which is, yeah. So where is the authority then? Who has it? Yeah. So, and I it. It's just a wild. It, it it is a little interesting too because everyone draws a line somewhere. I guess is where I kind of come back to. So, I have the microphone this morning. For better or worse, guys, I have the microphone. Um, and so even some people are like, I'm not using my gifts. I'm not getting to speak. You're da da da. Well, that's true of a lot of people here, not just the ladies. Like, that's true of a lot of guys here. They don't get the microphone either. You know, it's just, it's just interesting sometimes where I feel I've ran into it a few different times with um, someone who's a little more on the side. Um, so if you're not familiar kind of with the egalitarians, that there's no difference between men and women versus complementarian, that there is a difference in, you know, there's, there's no difference in quality in the sense of there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek in Christ, but we have distinct roles that complement one another that God made from the beginning, um, where, where, again, they're very gifted. And there are very gifted speakers who are female. There's no question about it. And that's just kind of back to you going, well, that's not the question we're asking. Um, there's a lot of gifted speakers at church this morning, too, but why does Josh have the microphone? And it's because, okay, because the authority of the church and doctrine is elders, and then the elders have appointed someone to receive double honor who labors in the word. Right. Did did that up and the created order? I actually think First Corinthians eleven is a really good place. It says it hasn't upended the created order, but it does change. If you were to go back, it is going to change husbands and wives. It is going to change fathers and mothers, and you're not going to get to treat your spouse the same way your unbelieving neighbors treat their spouse. You're not going to get to treat your children the way. The rest of the world treats their kids. So, <clears throat> uh, okay. Any other questions on that? <clears throat> yes. Have we talked about this before? So the question, video-wise, is, if I summarize it right, is, is the question of what do you do with these issues when someone takes a very personal, like, specific, not only, like, taking a different application or implication that we're taking, but then also taking it and making it very, very specific, what kind of head covering, and then the very specific thing. Um, I, I would probably, and there's a great irony in it, because um, I think the same thing happens if you're within a charismatic church, um, and the irony is what is wrapping this whole section is unity. What's wrapping this whole section is 1032, give no offense 
um, either the Jew or Greeks or to the Church of God, just says, you know, please men in all things, not seeking my own profit. Um, obviously, you're going to get into 1 Corinthians 13, the nature of love. Um, you're going to get into pursue the higher gifts, which he's going to talk about um, in that sense of like prophecy and preaching. Why? Because that actually is helping other people grow where this one thing is serving you. So I would probably give a very similar answer in that you really got to look at the full context here of you're missing the whole point of what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to unify, not divide. So if you're taking the passage that he's actually trying to draw unity out and you're creating division, you got it wrong. It's almost one of those like, well, you got it wrong. Go back, observe more. Um, one book that uh, I think it was Show Me the Spirit <coughs> by uh, D.A. Carson, which is a really interesting book, but it's his exposition <coughs> of 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. So you guys know D.A. Carson, he's retired now, but well-known New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. And I remember th- a couple of funny things about this book. I, I read that book, and um, he is um, open but cautious. That is, he's technically charismatic. And he was, this book came out of him pastoring in Canada where he had a church that was split over this issue. And I thought it was so interesting. He said, oh, I'm going to teach through this passage. And so even though he technically is charismatic, the miraculous revelatory gifts are still operating, although he would probably say, not normative, but he would still believe in from them being operating today. Once he taught through, like the testimony of that book, he's basically like, once I taught through the context of unity, he's like, it all just shut down. He's like, it just wasn't an issue anymore at the church. Because it was like, once you really see Paul's argument, oh, how can we be fighting over more um, extravagant, um, you know, in essence, kind of stage show production gifts when you just, yeah, they're going, we can't, that's just, that's wrong. Even if they, even if I did have the gift of speaking in tongues, just demonstrating it in such a disunifying way is unloving and that makes no sense. So it was interesting because he said as he taught through it by the end, it was a non-issue. Um, but he also has a really interesting view of tongues in there. So it's really weird. So. I don't know necessarily. I feel like hats probably more were uh, keep the sun off your face kind of deal. Um, and then, yes, maybe a little bit in some more conservative fundamentalist type places where, you know, you might have read this passage <coughs> and been take your hat when you go, take your hat off when you go inside. And I don't know how much it's tied to like the broader culture or, you know, a, a technical. So I, I don't know an exact answer to that. So, but some of that stuff lingers on. And some of it also, I think, where you go back to, like, it's okay um, if it's a non issue to acquiesce to the, the culture to some degree, um, which we all do whether we want to or not. I mean, based on what we wear, what we drive, where we go. Um, you could say, Josh, why are you wearing a suit? It's so ostentatious, or, you know, whatever. But then it's also like, man, but if I turn on, like, the NBA finals, I bet every announcer's in a suit and a, and a tie. Which, you know, I draw my line somewhere. But um, if I turn on any NFL game, the guy's going to be in a suit and a tie. So it's like, oh, so culturally it's still pretty much accepted that that's normally what we go, that's formal. Um, And so that's kind of where I don't think everyone needs to be wearing suits or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, you start to go like, oh, we're all kind of, at some point people at work say, this is the code and we all kind of go to it. So real quick here, and then we'll close. Um, let's see. Yeah, just a couple of comments. Imperatives and indicatives. Um, so in English, when you're making an imperative, making a command, if we were going to go to it, we'd go to Ephesians or Galatians. Um, but there are certain things in the scriptures that the implication is you need to believe something. And there are other implications that you need to do something. <coughs> Keeping these distinct is very important and super helpful. Um, where it can be helpful in the language is you're going to see it even in the tense of the verb. Um, is this making a statement about being who you are in Christ, or is this making a statement about an action you need to go do? Um, this becomes particularly important when you're talking about the gospel and that um, the New Testament is, is keeping there. There are things that we need to um, 
believe and there, we need to be careful that we're not tying as in our sanctification these commands to be sanctified with our identity. So confusing these two things can be a big issue when it comes to application because we can, we can tie them together where this is a command to do things and if I don't do it, then it affects what I believe and it's going, that's not the point. The, 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 take the implication or application directly from is it telling me to believe something or is it telling me to do something Keep them distinct and separate so that you don't um, get those confused. Uh, lastly, it's just a personal thing. Um, I like this idea, I think, as you study and as you think and as you give advice. I think the whole idea of central themes and having, um, even if it is a little simplistic at times, because you could try to maybe, First Corinthians, unity, one word. Maybe you could give it in one sentence. But the more you study to try to get down and, and help people um, and to really believe and be convicted that the scriptures do have a purpose and that this book is really here for a reason for the church. Um, so if you're struggling, man, I want to grow spiritually, I want to grow spiritually, the 9 out of 10 people are going to go look for a book on Amazon on spiritual growth. And, and that's where you go, you know, it's one of the issues in the church today. You have a book like Colossians that is all about growing spiritually. Or a book about James, I'd say, is very similar, um, all about maturity so if you had somebody who really wanted to grow spiritually, I'd say you can be intentional with what book you go through. Uh, you don't have to do a topical study. You can do a whole study on Colossians or a whole study on James. Um, someone's really struggling with unity. Um, you could go to some passages and say, like, hey, you shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't let the sun go down your anger in Ephesians or something. But you, you could also say, hey, we're going to do a longer study. We're going to look through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And by the time, hopefully, you work through that, they see the power and importance of unity. Um, same thing with, like, I think Philippians and that whole idea. <clears throat> if you're really struggling with there's no good church on the planet outside of me and Providence um, or something like that nature, um, I think Philippians is a really good place to go. You know what? Like, like First, uh, First Corinthians kind of is a similar vein. There, there's going to be some disagreements along the way, but what, we can partner with those people we agree with in the gospel, and I think it's okay. It's a big town. We can be a little distinctive. We're all distinctive in a little way, and personality, um, but it's, it's an encouraging book to study in that you recognize the, the importance and the priority of, of partnering in the gospel. So um, just to say there are ways to not only say uh, we can go look at a verse, I can counsel with the verse, but you can actually kind of, I think the way I phrase it is there's a book for that. And it's a little more work, but I think it's more rewarding. So, all right, next time we will look at narrative.